Hi, and welcome to the third episode of the Artemis Take on Global Equities. I'm Katrin Schindler from CityWire, and as always in the series, I'm joined by Jakob Dietusch-Leck, who's a Global Income Fund Manager at Artemis. In this episode, we're taking a look at the double whammy of spiking volatility and rampant inflation, neither of which seem to cool down anytime soon. So Jakob, let's focus on volatility first. What's driving those rather pronounced volatility swings we're experiencing at the moment? Um, I mean, if you look at financial theory, then in efficient markets, everything is priced in. So every time there's a new piece of information that drives a change in either perception or price or, or something, and the more news you, that hits us, the more known unknowns turn to known knowns or unknowns unknowns become known knowns. The more of that that hit us, the more we have to adjust how we price stuff, and that creates volatility. So it's not that volatility is sort of coming from nowhere, but the more uncertainty there is, um, the more sort of the fatter the tails get in the distribution of outcomes. And that's, in a way, what we're dealing with now, that frankly, you know, on a good day, we can hope that gas prices come down, that inflation comes down, therefore central banks won't have to hike, and we sort of get a better outcome than what's priced in. And on a rainy bad day, you wake up and you think there's war in Europe. 20 years worth of liquidity has to get sucked out of markets. Inflation is out of control. Uh, there's very little international coordination. Social cohesion is fragile. And if you start putting that into financial markets, then, then you might get some price targets that are below where we are. And as we oscillate between those two outcomes, mm -hmm based on sort of short-term news inflow that we're not in control of, that obviously that creates the volatility. And I think the problem is, of course, that we've had sort of a framework over the last, let's say, 20, 25 years, independent central banks with a 2% inflation target, globalization rolling out, sort of deflationary currents in the economy, And although there's been a lot of shocks, like the financial crisis and COVID, et cetera, these shocks have been what we would call exogenous shocks. They come from the outside and kind of change the, the, the environment for a while, but then you go back to how it was before. And in that environment, even though you get volatility, the direction of travel has been clear, sort of asset prices up, inflation down, low interest rates, a bit more financial leverage in the system. And that algorithm has, broadly speaking, been good for both equity and bondholders. Mm -hmm. Well, kind of any, every asset holder. There's been a bull market in everything, more or less. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to see us go back to that scenario where all assets go up. So now it's much more of the sort of zero-sum game. What kind of duration do we want to have both on the, on the fixed income side but also on the equity side? And where do we think inflation is going to stabilize in the medium term? That's the big question. How aggressive will central banks be? And frankly, uh, central banks have not covered themselves in glory by allowing inflation going double digit. Uh, I know they're blaming supply side for the issues, but you know, misallocation of investment capital for, for a decade, politicians pushing certain agendas has created a world which is, you know, the global economy is not um, a fine-tuned machine anymore. And that creates volatility. So what do you expect central banks to do right now? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, I mean, the base case would be that, especially in the U.S., they have to continue to hike because they can. Mm -hmm. It might mean a stronger dollar, 
that's a problem for the rest of the world. Well, the Americans might not worry so much about the rest of the world now as they did maybe 10, 15 years ago or even five years ago. So the base case would be that the Americans hike because they can. The Europeans has to have to figure out whether they want to hike or not, but I think they have to. Um, and the same in, in the UK, but that's sort of a, a purist approach because what they have to do is not necessarily what they will do. They might buckle. They might just realize they can't hike rates in a world that is incredibly geared mm -hmm. with lots of financial assets as a percent of GDP and sort of 20 years worth of financialization of the economy, if that's even a word. Um, and, and the base case would be for higher rates, but I do think that there will be sort of, there will be moments, not in the short term, but in the longer term, where we're going to have a hard time getting inflation down. Of course, it won't stay at double digit forever. It's pure math. There's some base effects. So right now we're seeing these very excessive inflation rates. Even if things just stay the same, they by definition, year and year inflation will start coming down. But it won't come down to 4% or 3% by itself. It might come down to 6 7 8%. You know, we'll see. Um, where it'll stabilize. And then central banks have to decide whether they will accept 4% being the new 2%. Mm -hmm. And in turn, how bad of a recession we need, how much demand destruction we need um, for the supply issues that they have no impact on and no control over, for the supply issues not to lead to a mismatch between supply and demand. Mm -hmm. So I think the base case is for rates going higher. And again, that makes me think that I rather want short-term assets rather than long-duration assets. Mm -hmm. I want value over growth. I want tangible over intangible. You know, it is an, a rollback of a lot of the trends we've seen for the past 10 years. That actually leads nicely into my next question, which is how does inflation actually affect the 60-40 portfolio? You've already touched on that, basically. Well, you know, inflation is, is a game-changer because it is essentially... Um, putting a time value on money that we haven't had for a while. And it's sort of, it's a fairly obvious thing, but it always hits you. You always look at, at sort of, oh, inflation is coming and it'll, it'll mean X, Y, Z. But then you actually run a financial model and you realize that a long duration asset, where you put in a higher risk-free rate, um, you put in inflation, you might put in some decline in margins for mm -hmm. corporates because if they can't pass it on. Um, so it, it makes the whole sort of financial algorithm, so to speak, quite messy. And for a 60-40 portfolio, the problem, of course, is that if you're sitting in bonds, um, even if they're inflation-linked, because frankly, you, you can't totally hedge away inflation, uh, even if you're sitting in, in, in various types of sort of more inflation-protected fixed income assets. And even on the on the equity side, even if you're investing in asset-backed stuff, sectors that traditionally are a little bit more immune to, to, to higher cost of capital and, and higher inflation, ultimately it drives down the net present value of the future cash flows. And again, finance 101, an asset is worth the present value of, of, mm -hmm. of the discounted cash flows. So I think the problem we all have um, is that we sort of think, okay, in absolute terms, there are some bargains in the market. We can see that. We can discuss what political outcome there'll be. We can discuss um, where central banks will end up. Um, some things are cheap, some things are expensive. The market as a whole is not super cheap, but 
most companies are actually quite cheap. It's just pretty, um, you know, the tails are quite, quite expensive. So looking at that environment for a 60-40 portfolio, the problem is going to be where, where can I put my money to at least get some capital protection? And yeah. I think the lesson this year, which of course 2022 so far has been a pretty extreme year in the sense that a 60-40 has had the worst, the worst time ever. In real terms, many assets have had a hard time, um, especially measured in dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, and what was supposed to be your volatility buffer in the portfolio, what was supposed to be the safe stuff, is actually maybe down five, ten, fifteen percent, and that's when every asset allocator then has a problem because what are you willing to pay for having low volatility if you know you're going to be losing five, six percent mm -hmm. a year so in a, in a fixed coupon asset? Do you actually think investors are paid sufficiently for volatility? Well, it's, it sort of depends what we think about volatility because volatility is sort of, you know, if you hold things for a very long term, mm -hmm. then you don't mind volatility. It can go up, can go down, you just stick with it. Yeah. So the way I think of it is often that volatility is unpleasant if you become a forced seller. So the question is, do you have leverage in the system? If you have leverage, you might be a forced seller. Then volatility is super dangerous because you're being forced to sell at the wrong time. That's mm -hmm. what markets do. They inflict the most pain on the most people. That's, that's the function. At least it feels like that quite often. Um, what we then do is we think, well, a less investing companies that might have less leverage mm -hmm. because then a company at least won't be, uh, the equity won't be as volatile because you have a bigger buffer. You don't mm -hmm. have as much leverage. And also the company is being run for shareholders or stakeholders more widely, and not just for the debt holders. So there are things you can do, especially as an equity investor, to kind of say, what kind of volatility do I want? Mm -hmm. I might not want the volatility that comes from leverage, but I don't mind the volatility that comes from earnings jumping around a bit. Yeah. That's just sort of the business cycle. Um, the question, are investors um, paid for the volatility? I think it... it Investors never never feel that they're paid enough when, when every asset yeah. class is down. So by definition, you know, when equities are down, bonds are down, and cash is the best asset class, of course, you're not paid for the volatility. Yeah. That's not how it's supposed to be, but that's how markets are. I, I don't really think in those terms. I think more, what can you do to ultimately make sure that you're not going to get forced to sell at the wrong time? No. And if you have an asset that at least is throwing off dividends, that's, you know, I'm talking my own book as an income investor here, but if you have an asset that isn't too levered and is throwing off a dividend yield um, of, of, let's say, 3 4%, and they can grow that 5 10% a year, then your total return should, should definitely be ahead of inflation, mm -hmm. which actually in this environment is not an easy, easy task. Uh, and that in itself should lower the volatility. But your question, um, expanding on your question a bit, you could say that assets that traditionally are low vol have become high vol. And that's because a lot of the low vol assets have become quite crowded. So people are selling what they own, mm -hmm. and therefore assets that might not actually um, have the underlying financial characteristics of a, of, a, of a volatile asset have become quite volatile, okay. like bonds, like, like tech stocks. So would you say, is now the time to snap up some bargains? Um, there are definitely, and, and I'm going to sort of talk about equities, I think, more here, because with 
other assets that we've discussed, central bank policy becomes the big question. But I think if we purely look on on equities, which is which is what we what we do, there is no doubt that there are companies out there trading on single-digit PEs, where one could say even if there is a very sharp recession, you would think that you could sit through it mm-hmm. and come out on the other side cash flow positive. And that's both in sort of what I would say uh, relatively deep cyclicals like freight companies, container shipping companies that are trading on PEs of two, which isn't because the market is stupid, but the market just knows that freight rates might come down 90%, yeah. in which case a PE of two becomes a PE of 12 or 13 or 14, which is probably high for a freight company. So what we're seeing is some pretty gloomy expectations about the economy being priced into certain sectors and not others. Mm-hmm. So what we're saying is, well, let's buy those sectors where the worst case scenario seems priced in. It might get really bad, who knows, but at least there we have some compensation for that. Um, what would those sectors be? Well, look, I mean, there are commodity sectors where the free cash flow on spot is 15 20%. Um, and that's because the market says commodity prices are going to fall. Look what's happening in, in China. Commodity prices are going to come down even more than they have. Maybe they will. It's quite possible. Who knows? Yeah. Um, same with, with I mean, shipping companies. Those are the deep cyclicals where a lot of the pricing is high because of supply chain issues. And as the global economy kind of slows down, then there's less of an issue with the supply chain because the demand is, is, is coming down. So that's one area where we think that if you're buying some real assets, you're not buying intangibles, you're buying either companies that own their own ships and containers, and you buy companies that have uh, resources in the ground. They traditionally don't do great in a recession, but a lot is priced in already. Mm-hmm. And then there are companies that um, are very consumer-facing, that are quite expensive, that we are, we are avoiding. You know, companies where there is this belief that even if the economy slows down, the consumer is still going to be kind of okay. And there are lots of sort of luxury goods and high-end consumer companies still trading at double-digit P's. Um, I mean, even a company like Apple is not growing anymore as quickly as they used yeah. to. It's a fantastic company, quality company, but on a very high PE multiple. And I'm sort of wondering if we're discussing whether you can put food on the table or heat your, your house, are you gonna are you gonna buy an iPhone 14 because there's a slightly better camera? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe people will start changing behavior. Of course for some people it won't be a problem, but for some people it will be a problem. So we're definitely trying to avoid sort of the higher end consumer space where there could be a squeeze. But in general, I think the consumer space is, is, is looking tricky. And how else is your fund, the Artemis Global Income Fund, cushioning against the rise in inflation? So I think we, if we had to make sort of a pecking order, and it's very, very, very stylized, and it doesn't mean that we are positioned this way completely. <laughs> but I think sort of the roadmap is that we're seeing a world that is quite unpleasant, <laughs> It could get worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could also get better, but there's little sign of of of, of that. Um, so we like companies that are producing tangible assets, tangi- tangible stuff. We like upstream rather than downstream. We like defensives rather than cyclicals. Mm-hmm. And then on the financials, um, they are very cheap. I mean, European banks are as cheap as they were during the 
financial crisis. And you could argue that their balance sheets are in much better shape. But ultimately, if you have a recession, banks rarely perform. So when it comes to financials, country risk and country selection becomes key. And we have some financials in Brazil, for example, commodity producing country, Mm -hmm. slightly away from what's going on, producing soft commodities and and sort of taking a bit the space of, 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 of Ukraine. So it's not that we completely avoid financials, but I would say we have much less in financials now than we've had ever before, and probably more in tangible companies, whether it's infrastructure, real estate, mining, energy. Yeah. And has your risk management process changed in any shape or form since the war in Ukraine, since the rise in inflation, since everything we've experienced since the beginning of the year? Well, I think leverage, as, as, as I mentioned before, is becoming a bigger source of risk than it has been. Yeah. You know, three, four years ago, rates were zero. Companies could refinance themselves and they were just rolling over debt. And every time they did that, it was at a lower rate. It's a bit like, you know, people taking out mortgages and releasing a bit of equity. Mm-hmm. Now that kind of, that has gone into reverse. So having companies that might have a short, um, let's say short average maturity on their outstanding debt. Mm -hmm. If we then can see that five years or three years from now, they have to start issuing debt at much higher rates because I do think fundamentally there's been a regime change. The rates and funding costs will be higher three years from now than they were three years ago. Um, If we see companies in that situation, we see that at a bit of 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 a risk factor now. Can you actually fund yourself? And that again pushes us towards high free cash flow generating companies. The other point I would also say is that it's always in every crisis, companies that you thought were safe emerge and you realize they weren't as safe as you thought. Can you give an example? Well, we have tech companies, for example. You know, a company like NVIDIA, fantastic company, or companies like 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 Netflix or, mm-hmm. you know, growth companies where, where they could not set a foot wrong. Yeah. And they did you know, they've been fantastic for many years. They've created new products and they've really been innovative and, and, and solved some consumer demands. And you might have asked yourself two years ago, what can go wrong? And then these stocks are down 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60% from the peak. Mm-hmm. And you say, ah, okay, what was it that went wrong? It was maybe geopolitical issues with China. It was maybe supply chain issues. It was maybe the weaker consumer. Or it maybe was a very high multiple. There's always something. And a lot of these assets had become very low volatility because they've been going up in a straight line for, for a number of years. Mm-hmm. So there was a bit of sort of, I hate to use the word complacency because it's not complacency. It's just the fact that there's a lot of asset, a lot of liquidity chasing these assets because they've been going up. Yeah. And that in itself means they're lower volatility. On the other hand, you have mining companies which again are super cyclical, so that, 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 that's a risk, of course. But if I go back 10 years, they used to have quite levered balance sheets. Now they spent 10 years not digging holes in the ground but paying off debt. Mm-hmm. And they are sort of pretty boring companies now, owning some assets, but have very good balance sheets. Mm-hmm. So of course, if the global economy goes into a massive recession, China stops buying iron ore and copper, et cetera, then they will have trouble. Mm-hmm. But they have a much higher probability of weathering that storm well because they don't have balance sheets. So again, I think as an equity investor, we don't always think about balance sheets. We tend to think at earnings much more. And in the current environment, we probably have to forget about earnings a little bit and think more about the balance sheet. So has now the time come for more of those um, old-fashioned companies, energy companies? I think so. 
But um, again, that that for that to happen, we need to accept that some kind of regime change has happened. I'm arguing that we are in a regime change. I'm arguing that rates have bottomed out and probably go higher for a while, not lower, that inflation will not come down to 2% again. And the sort of the, the, the regime, the paradigm we've been in sort of from the late 70s with lower rates, lower inflation, the paradigm we've been in since the late late 80s and then when, when China entered WTO, that that's all being rolled back. Mm-hmm. Again, this will take time, just as like the other regime was a multi-decade regime. This will, we won't, we won't for sure know that until the things have actually outperformed quite dramatically. But our view is that you get paid a bit more, you have a bit more of a cushion of safety investing in companies that have very strong cash flows, uh, even if there is a slowdown in the economy. And again, I think that things like recession, even if they do happen, it's not, you know, who doesn't know that? You know, who doesn't know that gas prices are back uh, at an all-time high? So a lot of this is already priced in. And, and we're probably at an environment now going back to your very first question about volatility. The reason markets are so volatile is because you need very little information to move prices quite a lot. Mm. True. And based on that, what what's your outlook for the rest of the year? I mean, so far it sounded quite doomy and gloomy, but is there anything we can be optimistic about going forward? I think the optimism could come from the fact that um, a lot has been priced in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it's been a first half like <laughs> as bad as ever. And when everyone is very gloomy and when things have already given up a lot and you can't see why you want to go long an asset, usually that's kind of the pain trade. Yeah. Um Sometimes things are genuinely so bad that even the pain trade is not what you want to do. And I remember back to 08 or 09 when we had the financial crisis. Lots of assets back then were cheap and the pain trade was to buy them. But actually, the right thing was just to step away. But nevertheless, you know, equities did bottom out in March 09. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we made the bottoms. I'm, I'm not calling markets like that. But there is a lot of stocks out there. And I mentioned there are. There are stocks on low single-digit P's where you sort of think, well, you know, how much can earnings fall from here before the stock actually is still cheap? So let's, the, let's say the earnings fall 50% and the P of 4 becomes a P of 8. Mm-hmm. Well, that's probably still cheap enough to buy it. So that's what we're sort of looking for. That's where the bargains are. A lot of the very expensive stuff has gotten cheaper, but it's still not cheap. And of course, it's about starting point. If you're used to something trading on 40 times, and it becomes 30, you're itching to buy it, but actually it's still not cheap yeah. if risk rates are high. So I'm not sort of arguing that we are going out and bottom fishing in expensive stuff because it's gotten a little bit cheaper. Um, but there are definitely pockets, and I would say uh, energy stocks, for example, are still quite cheap if we think oil stays above 50. Mm-hmm. Mining companies are also quite cheap. Not all of them, but a number of them are quite cheap on a free cash flow basis. So... I think we, we, we have a pretty diversified portfolio right now, but just the fact that we don't have as much software as the market and don't have tech and a bit of more of the old economy stuff moves us into that corner of, of regime change. Fantastic. Ending on a note of slight optimism. I like <laughs> that. Thanks, Jakob. Thank and you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And if you haven't done so already, also check out episodes one and two. Bye for now.